when the relationship between macroeconomic principles becomes uncertain, should policy become more aggressive or perhaps more cautious? Welcome back to another episode of World Wild Economy. Uh, this week we're going to be talking about uncertainty and how it distorts uh, monetary policy, especially here in the uh, European Union, the ECB. Uh, that, that's kind of what we're going to be talking about this week. So I hope you've had a great week. Uh, we'll get straight into it. So uh, for those of you who don't know, the European Central Bank, the ECB, uh, they implemented a negative interest rate policy uh, in mid-2014. I believe it was somewhere around June. And with its most uh, kind of recent quantitative easing package uh, being implemented last month, so an incremental rate cut of 10 basis points from negative 0.4% to negative 0.5%, and also a renewal of bond buying by the ECP, uh, ECB, sorry, uh, 20 billion euros worth of bonds uh, bought back each month by the central bank. It was obviously opposed by uh, Draghi's Mario Draghi, the, the current president uh, of the ECB, until Thursday, I believe. It was opposed by his hawkish colleagues. So hawks usually want uh, rate hikes, uh, quantitative tightening, in other in other words, whereas doves. Uh, they want lower rates, more quantitative easing, uh, that, that kind of policy, the, the opposite. So, as we know, in theory, uh, low or lower interest rates or, you know, negative interest rates as we have in the European Union or Eurozone, uh, they're meant to incentivize uh, private investment, sorry, and disincentivize private savings, right? So, business investment, that's meant to be incentive for it and disincentive for private savings, but, you know, why have people started to save more? Well, if you look at my blog, I've actually kind of, uh, you know, dug up some uh, data from Eurostat. I've looked in great detail on this topic because really what we're meant to see is with these negative rate cuts, uh, or you say essentially the uh, interest rates going further into the negative territory, uh, we're meant to see more business investment, more business activity, uh, more consumption and essentially less saving, right? So essentially, uh, with low interest rates, people see that as a lower return on their investment when they put money in the bank. But really, I looked at the data and we're seeing something completely different. So essentially, figure one, as I have on my blog, it essentially shows the saving rate uh, in a few kind of variables for the European Union, Eurozone and some of the countries. But essentially, figure one, I looked at the saving rate in the EU and the Eurozone. So essentially, the saving rate is calculated as a gross savings uh, divided by gross disposable income you know, per individual. So essentially, the disposable income is the money that uh, goes into the pockets of individuals and something that they can actually do with, right? Um, so they can maybe you know, pay off their loans, um, debts, you know, costs of living, food, consume, you know, go to the cinema, whatever. So out of that, what do they actually use on, uh, or what do they actually save, sorry? So really, uh, I looked at the data and slap bang in the, I've, I've got a graph in front of me here and I'm kind of going to try and verbally explain what's going on so anyone listening to the podcast can actually understand it. So I've got a graph data from 2010, the second quarter of 2010, all the way to the second quarter of 2019. Slap bang in the middle of that is when the ECB implemented their negative rate policy which was second quarter of 2014. It was around June, somewhere like that. So essentially, what we see is that after that, until around 2017, third quarter, fourth quarter, you did get saving rates uh, falling in the EU specifically. Eurozone, there wasn't too much movement, but nevertheless, uh, from 2014, from the implementation all the way to end of 2017, uh, there was a drop in the savings rates, right? So people saved less and therefore they either consumed, uh, you know, they spent money on consumption 
or they spent money on investment. So uh, either the two, that, that, that does follow typical macroeconomic theory, which I'm currently being taught at university. Uh, however, since reaching a low of 9.3%, uh, actually, sorry, just, just to kind of clarify, in 2014, uh, second quarter, the savings rate for the EU was 11%. So out of 100%, you know, gross disposal income, people used to save 11%, right? So um, in 2017, end of 2017, that reached a low of 9.3% around that. And since then, it's actually started creeping back up. So really, it's near, nearing the levels back when the uh, kind of policy was first implemented, whereas actually for the Eurozone specifically, uh, it's actually now above uh, what it was during the implementation, which was at the beginning, uh, so second quarter of 2014, 12.5. Now it is actually uh, 13%, right? So And if you look at countries specifically, that's figure two on my blog, you can check it out. Germany and France didn't move uh, much at all. In fact, Germany has a very stable saving rate at around 17%. Now it is up uh, to 18%. And France, even though it's been a bit more volatile, still only a half percent or one percent increase in savings rate throughout the same duration, right? So I looked at this data and I was wondering what the hell is actually going on. And I spoke to some professors and really what we came up with is the a key factor that might actually be a play here is political, but mainly economic uncertainty, right? Uncertainty regarding the economic climate. It's been growing alongside the current bull run, right? We've been in a bull run for 10 years, and year after year, people expect uh, a recession to hit. We've been in it for so long. When is it finally going to come crashing down? Anyways, but we're in an interesting point wherein uh, you've got a few key macro events all increasing uncertainty and increasing the kind of like likelihood sorry, of a recession occurring, right? So uh, a couple of these are Brexit, uh, the US-China trade war, and also oil-related uh, turmoil in the Middle East. There are three mainly exogenous factors, uh, you know, wherein uh, the EU can't actually control the verdict of, right? They, they can't really help or, you know, put this process to an end. They can only bear the effects, right? More tariffs, especially with the Airbus case recently against the US, more tariffs on EU imports or essentially EU exports, uh, as in imports of, let's say, the US. Oil prices, again, like I said, and consequently, what this means is that Germany and Italy's economies have decelerated heavily for the past years, right? The Brexit's been going on for about three years. Uh, the trade war is out as well for two years, and the oil price or oil turmoil uh, in the Middle East has been going on since forever, essentially. The OPEC are uh, very terrible at maintaining price stability as they, you know, they say that's what their mission is, but obviously they're not too great at their job in that case. So in addition, you've also got uncertainty regarding economic policy and really kind of its effectiveness, uh, which has also been rising above the mean uh, for the past five years. Coincidentally, since the same time, as the ECB actually implemented negative interest rates on deposits. And so really what you get overall is that uncertainty, it clouds interest sensitivity of aggregate demand, of which obviously consumption, so private spending and private investment are key components of, right? People, or essentially from the government, uh, from the central bank's perspective, policy making perspective, you're not sure how people's consumption and business investment will react to, let's say, a certain change in the interest rate or money supply, whatever. So really, uh, uncertainty, like I said, clouds the interest rate sensitivity or interest sensitivity of aggregate demand. And as such, from a policy-making perspective, uh, it's a large problem, right? You don't know to what extent you should move uh, interest rates up or down. 
and you don't know how people, economic agents, are going to react. So, for example, the ECB's president, Mario Draghi, has encapsulated sorry, this task of managing monetary policy in our current economic environment as, I'm going to quote him, in a dark room, you take tiny steps, right? So he's suggesting a more cautious, uh, essentially, approach, which comes back to the question at the beginning. But essentially what he says is, you know, suggesting not to stay put uh, within an uncertain economic climate, but to keep adjusting your policy uh, to better understand and quantify uh, the macroeconomic events, or sorry, variables, macroeconomic variables at play, right? To, to what extent um, is aggregate demand sensitive to interest? Well, we don't know, essentially. This is because of uncertainty. Again, it clouds the real uh, macroeconomic variables, their sensitivity uh, to changes in policy, and as such, what I'm going to do now is kind of split these effects into two sides. So essentially, you've got a consumer side or uncertainty on the consumer side, and I'll then talk about the uncertainty on the business side. Right, so consumers, you know, like myself or households from a macroeconomic perspective, we all aim to maximize our utility, you know, a certain standard of living. Utility and economics, essentially, the value we get from consuming or doing something, right? For example, I might choose an apple over a banana because that, you know, it gives me more nutrients. It tastes better. I have more fun eating it. And as such, it gives me more utility, right? So, for example, consumers might, might also find uh, high utility in having a mix of going to the cinema with their friends, but also working hard during the week right that might maximize their utility and that such utility is quite subjective right people derive different levels of utility from different activities and uh, consuming different goods but essentially utility everyone tries to maximize their own utility i.e maintain a certain standard of living therefore you know when you have talks of uncertainty and recession appear in fact, you can even go on Google Trends. It's essentially a service which shows you the kind of popularity of a term. I, I typed in the term recession, and in Google Trends, you saw a big spike in uh, searches for recession, obviously in 2009, but also at the end of 2018, right? That, that, that's also an interesting case wherein people really thought a recession uh, was just around the corner. And as such, uh, you know, when talks of uncertainty and recession appear, like I just said, uh, at the end of 2018, it may induce an increase in precautionary savings, right? It In order to allow essentially the upkeep of the consumption and lifestyle of different households, right? So for example, I might save just in case, you know, when the recession strikes, income might go down, uh, I might lose my job. But if I save now, I will still be able to consume my bundle of different goods and services at the same level that I'm doing now. Right, so whether or not actually the money that I'm saving is interest uh, is earning people interest in the bank, right, with low negative interest rates, they still perceive uh, the cost of a recession, a trade war, etc., to be greater than the current cost of a low or negative interest rate. So, in other words, the benefit each consumer may extract from a certain, you know, sustained standard of living in the future outweighs the current cost of keeping money stacked away in the bank. Right, that's how consumers, um, rational consumers, uh, come to. Uh, thinking about decisions, the benefit cost analysis, am I going to be, is, is kind of my benefit outweighing the cost? Am I going to get more benefit in the future than cost right now or more benefit now than cost in the future? And as such, that's how people base kind of their um, decisions around. So kind of like, like I said, that that's one aspect of how uncertainty may impact consumer patterns, right? Uh, precautionary savings with uncertainty comes greater precautionary savings just in case, right? People don't know what's going to happen. And as such, uh, they want to be prepared, um, whatever really uh, kind of happens in the future, right? Whether there is there is a recession, whether they lose their job or whether their income only goes down, whatever it might be, 
Anyways, the second aspect is uh, savings in the sense that in the long run, uh, individuals will have certain retirement goals, right, or savings goals that they strive to achieve, right? So um, imagine yourself an individual X who currently has a child. Uh, so let's say, you know, that child is at age zero or one, whatever. So let's say if, if per individual X wants to save for that child's college tuition, university tuition, and that costs 100000 uh, let's say they might put 50000 in the bank now. Let's say the bank yields 4% annually allowing X to double their savings in about 18 years, right? So then obviously after 18 years with 4% compounding, 100,000 will go to help pay off the kids' uh, university tuition, etc. So assuming that 4% interest rate, X can, you know, sit back and simply wait for the kid to grow up, grow and be alongside his kind of uh, savings account. But if, however, um, the central bank cuts interest rates down to 2%, then all of a sudden, instead of X's $50,000 doubling in 18 years, it will take 36. So is X going to tell his kid to hold off university for another 18 years? Or are they going to only be able to pay off a smaller percentage of that tuition? Well, maybe. That, those are two possible case scenarios. But nevertheless, tuition has to be paid off one way or another, right? So either X starts saving more now, to subsidize the extra 2% loss in compounded savings, right? They put in money every year into the account, so they save more. Or they take on debt in the future, whereby X will have to save more in the future, right? Cut his future spending, increase their savings in the future to pay off that future debt, right? So essentially, um, what, what that shows is that even though interest rates go down, in some cases, savings might actually go up. Uh, contradictory to standard macroeconomic principles. So, you know, in the short term, individuals might save less and consume more with negative interest rates. But in the medium to long term, um, people, you know, they have retirement goals. They have different retirement and savings goals, whether it's for a wedding in 10 years, whether it's, you know, for some kids' college tuition in 18, whether it's for their actual retirement in like 40 they'll need to achieve these goals the best way that they can. And as such, prolonged interest rates or prolonged low or negative interest rates may have an adverse effect on people's savings alongside our current uncertain economic climate, right? So that's really how I'm looking at justifying the trend that we're seeing now. Uh, there was obviously a drop in the saving rate as in the short term, you know, negative interest rates may actually incentivize people to spend more, save less. But really in, in kind of future terms, or essentially when you're looking at the long run, people still have uh, their retirement goals. They have goals that they need to achieve. Nevertheless, otherwise they're going to pick up debt, which in such case, they'll have to save more anyways, right? So it's a case of, do I save now and spend uh, less now? Or do I save, you know, do I save more in the future and spend more now, right? So it's again, benefit cost analysis. But that is an example of how interest rates can adversely impact savings, you know, as opposed obviously to the macroeconomic theory that we have on hand, because macroeconomic theory suggests that when interest rates go down, people save more and consume more, uh, people save less and consume more. But actually, in this case, we're seeing with lower negative interest rates, um, you know, low interest rates in general, people are starting to save more. Right, so that's the consumer side. You've got precautionary savings and also adverse uh, kind of impacts on savings. Uh, as a result of uh, not only prolonged interest rates, prolonged negative interest rates, or low interest rates, but also uncertainty, uh, right, in general. 
So now we're gonna look at quickly the uncertainty on the business side, right? So as we know, businesses and managers may become more risk averse in these times of heightened uncertainty. So for example, whether or not credit is cheap alongside these negative interest rates or low interest rates, firms will potentially continue or start hoarding cash and wait until uncertainty has gone down or more information has become available, right? So large uncertainty in trade talks, uh, the GBP, Great British Pound Movement, uh, how is the currency going to fare, right? Oil prices and economic slowdown as seen in Germany and Italy. These events all propagate the possibility of an EU-wide recession, uh, which essentially promotes economic agents to shy away from investments, uh, different projects, and essentially hiring uh, in general, right? <clears throat> so essentially what we can look at is, well, okay, firms have got cash. They're not sure what to do with it because they're not sure what's going to happen. So what's actually happening uh, within the businesses, right? So if we look at the FTSE 100, the FTSE 100 has actually been, uh, I've also got this graph on my blog, uh, FTSE 100 has been yielding over 4% in annual dividends on average for the past few years, reaching 4.68% in 2018, right? So I'll just quickly run down the table. In 2013, it was 3.7%. Um, and then 2014, uh, sorry, no, 2012 was 3.7, 2013 it was 3.46, 2014 3.5, you get it, 2015 was nearly 4%, then it breached 4% in 2018 when it was 4.68, and um, midway 2019 we're at 4.3%, right? So you've got these huge dividends, especially since it's on an average level for a whole kind of a stock exchange, but why is it, right? So with cheap credit available, uh, you know, firms obviously try and do something with that credit. So uh, one, one case example could be that instead of investing into the firm, uh, companies can actually commence stock buybacks. This is something you see in the US now, especially companies uh, who commence stock buybacks. Essentially, a stock buyback is a firm can either buy back their stock from the public market, so keep it free float, or essentially uh, commit like a withdrawal, I think it's called. So essentially, instead of 10% of their stock being free float, uh, they're going to purchase 5%, so only 5% right, uh, stays free float. And as such, this can inflate asset prices because they usually purchase back the stocks at a higher price. So valuation metrics such as the EPS uh, looks a lot more favorable now uh, since obviously earnings can stay the same, but the number of shares has de decreased and also increases their dividends, right? Uh, let's say a 3% uh, dividend at a 100 share price is $3, but 3% at 200 share dollars is 6%, so it's more, obviously. So this effectively hollows other companies, right? They're increasing their stock, um, essentially price, they're increasing their market cap, but they're not investing into the firm. They're really just kind of moving around the money. They're paying, essentially transferring money back to shareholders, right? So buybacks and dividends are both ways of transferring money back to shareholders. And dividends especially, they incentivize investors to stay with the company and hold their stock, which may be important amidst current uh, investor confidence, especially in the UK, right? So essentially, you've got these firms unsure of what to do. Uh, they're keeping the cash. They're commencing stock buybacks. They're trying to maintain the same amount of shareholders, you know, trying to retain the shareholders uh, with these, for example, high dividends uh, as seen FTSE 100 or stock buybacks uh, in the US especially. Another metric we can also talk about is the European M&A activity, so that's, that's mergers and acquisitions. Uh, so essentially, mergers and acquisition activity has actually plummeted to its lowest quarterly value since uh, the third quarter of tw um, 2012. Sorry, so even though uh, private equity firms they're actually sitting on a record value of of dry powder. Those are liquid marketable securities. Sorry, 
uh, these private equity firms still want to deploy their dry, their dry powder, which is actually standing at $2.5 trillion worldwide. But again, especially in the EU or Europe in general, uh, it, the, the very uncertain climate doesn't allow for, you know, just private equity to commence these M&As uh, just because, again, like I said, uncertainty, they don't know if the business is going to worth going to be worth in the same sorry going to be worth the same amount in a year whether they'll be able to do the business along the same lines right so for example um the deal value uh within europe on the first quarter of 2019 was actually 122.9 billion us dollars compared to 271 billion dollars in the first quarter of 2018 so that is less than 50 percent change in uh, first quarter of 2017 it was 208 so that, that's uh, the first quarter of 2019 is around 55, 60% of what it was uh, just two years ago. But essentially, as you can see, there's a lack of willingness uh, to, you know, commence M&A activities as well as, uh, you know, the kind of the size of the deals has gotten smaller due to essentially a lower deal value on an aggregate level. So that, that, that's basically it on the business side. It's more theoretical and really tied in with the low negative interest rates that we're seeing in EU or, you know, just a uh, kind of Eurozone uh, specifically. But really, just to kind of recap, consumers uh, react to uncertainty through increasing their potential uh, precautionary savings. And we obviously know that savings might actually, like I said, go up in the short term when you've got high uncertainty uh, adverse to the macroeconomic theory current uh, in macroeconomic kind of policy current in uh, the Eurozone or EU. But essentially precautionary savings and also we have to keep in mind that people have retirement goals pension funds as well they need a certain they, they need to meet a certain target at the end of each year so people will make do with what they have either they're going to in you know put more into their savings account people will take on more riskier assets riskier investments which you know might be a good or bad thing that depends on the different kind of conversation might should talk about that in the week in the uh, next week or in the future and with businesses Again, they prefer to hold cash and wait, give back to investors, uh, retain shareholders instead of taking on new projects, new investments, just because, you know, let's say with Brexit, there might be a deal, there might not be a deal. Um, maybe the deal will be good. That maybe it will be bad. Maybe it won't be good for their industry. So people don't know what's going to happen, especially with Brexit. Like I said, the trade talks between the US and China, they're very exogenous factors and oil prices in general. How is the fundamental um, kind of price and cost of all businesses, right? Energy gonna fluctuate, and how is that gonna affect my business? So for now, dividends have been very uh, luxurious in the UK, especially in the UK, because they're trying to uh, the you know UK businesses are trying to retain their shareholders, retain investors on the British Isles. Uh, but essentially, the heightened uncertainty, especially in the short term, can adversely or show an adverse. A relationship between these macroeconomic variables and whether or not policy should become aggressive or more cautious that depends to the individual right sometimes you don't want to overshoot it but then you can argue you know if people are very not sensitive at, at all then we need a more aggressive policy to actually shaping shape things up and get the economy back on track right so obviously the, we have a two percent inflation target we i say us europeans i'm european i'm polish and as such, it is currently, I think, 1.5% or it's essentially way below target. I think it's targeted or it's forecasted to be 1.5% uh, in 2021. So obviously that's below target. Nevertheless, 
so how do we awaken the economy? That is a topic for another video. A very interesting topic, but nevertheless, guys, uh, I hope you've learned something. Again, I suggest you check out my blog. I've got all these graphs and visuals plotted on there. I've actually got a piece, few pieces of paper in front of me. Uh, I invite you to check that out. Uh, nevertheless, hope you've had a great week and goodbye.